So back around 1974-75, I took a very, very extensive evangelism training program called Evangelism Explosion. It was 17 weeks of intensive training on how to lead another person to faith in Christ. And there was two diagnostic questions that we would ask people to, to figure out where they were at spiritually. And I'm going to share the first question with you. It was this. If you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? Interesting question, don't you think? And depending on how people answered that question, that would uh, take us in a particular direction for the rest of the conversation. So I want to ask you the question, and for those of the, that, are, that are sitting here today, I want to ask you this question. How many of you here today want to go to heaven when you die? Not very many. Oh, oh actually, more. Some of you were thinking about it. Um, here's the, the other question. How many of you want to go there right now? Uh, okay, we have one. Now, <laughs> for the person in the back who said that, uh, you probably would like to go there right now because you are convinced that heaven is a way better place than here. And the rest of us might not be so sure about that, or we might think, well, it's better than the alternative. And so I want to just talk a little bit about heaven and earth in this message. Um, even for the believer, there is often a lot of anxiety about the life to come. I mean, we have our hope in the future, in what God is going to bring in the coming age. Um, that we know when we die, life will go on for those of us who have faith in Christ. But there's a little bit of uncertainty about it. And we're not sure exactly, well, what's heaven like? You know, like, will, will I still be me? Will I know people there? What about my body? Um, will there be sin in heaven? Uh, will it be interesting or will it be boring? You know, we have all these questions about it. And throughout the six weeks of messages, I hope that we can answer some of those questions for you. Um, and I kind of think of it like this, like a baby in the womb, for a baby in the womb, um, that's its world right there. That's the world for that baby. And you know, if that baby could think, I, I imagine it would be like, you know what, I like it here. It's very, very comfortable. It's soft. It's cozy. Everything is provided for me. But then that baby comes to the birth canal, is born into this world, and it's a rude birth. It, it, and, you know, it's kind of cold out here. And then there's this whole new world that this baby's going to get to explore. But it could be a little bit frightening. And it's like that for us. In this life right now, as we know it, this is our womb. But there is a new birth that we've experienced, but there's going to be even a greater birth in the life to come. And so, right now, heaven seems unimaginable for a lot of people. We, we can't quite fathom exactly what it's going to be like. And there's a lot of confusion about that. And I think it's because most people and I'm talking about Christians, have not taken the time to really study the Bible to say, what does the Bible actually teach about heaven and about the earth? And what does it tell us about the life to come? And so there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. Even some of the songs that we sing, I'll fly away, oh glory, you know, that song gives a bit of a wrong perspective on heaven. Or even like Jim Reeves, an old-time singer, who said, this world is not my home. It, there's some truth in that, but it also gives us some unbiblical notions about heaven, which I want to talk about in this series of messages. Most of us think that heaven is somewhere up there, 
in the clouds, and that that's where we're going to be spending eternity. It's really kind of a vague concept. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like we're going to be like cherubic beings with little wings floating around on clouds, just doing that for the rest of eternity. Uh, Disembodied spirits, basically. And that's really a heresy known as Gnosticism, but it's not a biblical concept of what heaven is going to be like. It's very unbiblical. And so, um, when we think about heaven like that, it can seem pretty uninteresting. And I love this cartoon, you know, where he's going, you know, I wish I would have brought a book, you know, (laughs) because I'm just here floating on this cloud for all of eternity, not much else to do. Uh, But how much of that is accurate? What does the Bible actually teach about heaven? And what does it say about the fate of this earth? Have you ever wondered about this? Jesus said, the meek shall what? Inherit the earth. What does that mean if we're going to heaven? And so we're going to talk about that in this this series of messages. We tend to think and talk about the immortality of the soul. That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about the resurrection of the body. And so over to my right here, I got some stuff that is, um, you know, depicts how things are in the world. So my wife and I bought these patio lights, and they had little stems on them, and it broke. Things in the world break. And um, then this was my favorite pair of winter gloves. I mean, if you look at them, fantastic. But they're all worn out now, just from use. I shouldn't have probably shoveled the sidewalk with these on. But, uh, and then something that really makes me mad is this thing is an external uh, DVD player. Uh, my laptop does not have a built-in DVD player, so sometimes if I wanted to see a DVD, I could plug this in. It was, worked great for about two or three months. Guess what? One day it said, this is incompatible with your device. Just stop. I don't know. Maybe Jeff over here can help me with that. But that, I've had that thing happen over and over again. And then there's this flower here. That's typical of things in this world. You know, th- this was... Sorry, Colleen, I picked it. Um, but, you know... It's all wilty at this point, and that really is just an example of what things are like in this world. Even the colors of fall. How many of you like the colors of fall? You know, we got the red, the orange, the yellow, the purple. Beautiful, but you know it's a sign of death. It's a sign that they're all going to fall. That's why we say fall instead of autumn, and that winter is on its way. And so all the deterioration and the decay and the rot that corrupts and spoils things of this world, that's what we know. And it's really the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, where everything moves into a state of chaos, randomness, disorder. And so even living organisms, like that flower, or like us, uh, living organisms generally start out brimming with life and potential, but then over time they grow old, fade, and die. And now I've got you all really depressed as you think about your, yourself being over 60 like me. Um, and then there's inanimate objects, like the ones I talked about over here. Uh, they wear out, they rust out, or they just get broken and stop working over time. So plans fail. Things break down. Our bodies grow old. People die. Everything in this world is perishable and fleeting. That's just how it is. Disappointment and loss are just a fact of life in this present age. 
And that's why I have had conversations with people who said, you know what, I don't, I don't want to live forever. If this is as good as it gets, I would rather it just be over when I take my last breath. But I want, I've got good news here. This life is not as good as it gets. Your next life will be your best life. And so if you hear any TV preachers say you can live your best life now, that's not the truth. That's a lie. Your best life is your next life. But it's going to be a lot different than what many people are expecting. And I want you to see this video. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, 
I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. All right. And so one day, the whole earth, as it says in Isaiah 40, will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So is it even right to talk about going to heaven when we die? Uh, what does the Bible actually teach about heaven, and what does it teach about the fate of the earth? So Trent uh, McDowell read the scripture to you uh, earlier. Uh, on video, and I just want to talk about that passage. It's a very, very interesting passage, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. In verse 18, it says this, and I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, we know that athletes make a lot of sacrifices, you know, in their, in their practice, in their training. 
Um, and it's sometimes really, really grueling. But the reason they do that is because they have their eye on the prize. So they're looking to that day when if they win that championship, they're going to get that championship ring. The, the, the hockey team might, would get the Stanley Cup and be able to hoist it over their, their heads. Um, and so we know that athletes do that. And so the pain they're suffering now is nothing compared to the glory that, will, that they'll uh, experience in that day. And so verse 18 is telling us that the glory and the excellence of God's new creation um, is going to exceed our wildest expectations and will make all the pain and suffering that we experience now seem as nothing. There's a story I saw on CNN, a very sad story, about uh, an immigrant family, the Aguirre family, um, and they came to America um, following the American dream, and they were beginning to live the American dream. They started their own food business, and then COVID came in March, and their business shut down. Everything began uh, to go the other direction. Things were being repossessed. And then in May, one of the family members got sick, and then another one, and another one. And then at the time of the story, earlier this week, this man, Ricardo Aguirre, had lost eight family members to the COVID-19 pandemic. And they interviewed him, and he was very, very emotional about it. Just ripped your heart out to watch it. But this man had deep faith in God. And the CNN journalist who was covering this story said, it was shaking her head and going, and his faith is still intact. He still has hope for the future. And that's what this passage in Romans chapter 8 is telling us. And I want to ask you, what's the worst possible human suffering that you think that you could experience? Just think about that for a second. What's the worst thing that you think could happen to you? Think of all the defeat, the failure, the tragedy, the shame, the sorrow, the loss, the disappointment that we experience or could yet experience. Our sufferings in this life are blue Mondays. Uh, when you have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, that's going to be as nothing on that day when we finally see Christ face to face in the age to come and we will become who we were created to be and so that's what verse 19 is about it says even the creation the whole universe waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God creation here is personified Creation, it says, itself is looking down on humanity, waiting for the day when we will be revealed for who we really are, for who we were created to be. And I love what the Passion Translation says that Trent read earlier. It says, the entire universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious Son's and daughters, and it's kind of like at a at a wedding, you know, when you when you uh, you know people who knew the bride and groom when they were babies, when they were little toddlers, and now they see them, they've come into their own, and they're dressed uh, so handsomely, so beautifully, and they come to the wedding, and they're kind of standing on tiptoe, and they're you know stretching their necks to get a glimpse of the bride and groom. And it's kind of like creation's doing that and looking at us. Um, and so here's a question: Why is creation so interested in us? Because Neil deGrasse Tyson, the cosmologist, who's, who's an atheist, seems like a nice guy, but he says, you know what? 
the universe is trying to kill us. And, and he says things like, who are we on this insignificant little blue planet in a distant corner of the universe? Who are we to think that we're anything at all when there's this amazing universe? Well, actually, it is about us at the end of the day. The whole universe is watching for what's going to happen with the children of God. And so I want to answer that question a little bit more fully in this series. Um, and so we know that the creation itself, it, the creation, and we know this, but the creation itself, the Bible says, knows that something is wrong with the world, with the cosmos. Something is out of joint. We see it in our politics. We see it in how we treat each other in the world. We see it in our exploitation of our planet. So verse 20 says that the creation was subjected to futility. We see that futility around us. Not willingly, but because of Him, meaning the Lord, who subjected it in hope. And so, I don't know how you feel about climate change, global warming. We all have different points of view on it. I think humans are a big cause of it. Uh, David Attenborough was a very well-known naturalist. I think he's in his early 90s. He just did a thing I watched on Netflix called A Life on Our Planet. And it begins with looking at the event in the nuclear uh, reactor meltdown that happened in Chernobyl back in, I think, 1986. And Chernobyl has now become a ghost town. It was a thriving community, has now become a ghost town. And this is what he says near the beginning of this, um, of this documentary. And I'm quoting. He says, the natural world, he says, is fading. The evidence is all around. It's happening in my lifetime, he says. I've seen it with my own eyes. This film, he says, is my witness statement that, and my vision for the future, the story of how we came to make this our greatest mistake and how if we act now, we can yet put it right. It's a warning, he says, that all is not well with our world and even with our universe. And we can try to fix what's wrong uh, through politics, through social revolution, through science, through technology, all, all of that. But none of our utopian efforts can ultimately fix what is wrong because there is a day coming when God is going to set things to rights. But it wasn't like that in the beginning. This universe that God created, what did God say? He saw that it was good. That was Genesis chapter 1. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and we find that sin entered the world through Adam, through Eve. And it was because of humanity's short-sighted choices that even creation itself has been victimized. Creation is the victim. We are the culprits. It is our sin that has caused this. That's what Romans chapter 8 says, and I, I really encourage you to study it. But there is a day of liberation coming. And that's what verse 21 says, that the creation itself will be set free. The creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There are two ages that the Bible talks about. There is the present age that we now live in, in this life. But then there is the age to come. That is the language of the Bible. Romans chapter 8 is telling us that God is not giving up on this creation. I, I'm looking at Terry Mahar sitting here. Terry, did God give up on you? No, you're still you. But he redeemed you, and that's what he's going to do with the whole universe. Jesus, why did Jesus say this? Why did he talk about the renewal of all things? 
That's found in Matthew 19, 28. He talked about it often, about the renewal of all things. And that word renewal is palingenesia, which comes from two words, two Greek words that means beginning again. The new creation is going to be a new beginning. It's going to be a new birth. We are born again, but the universe itself experiences this new birth. The promise of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth is not just a New Testament concept. It's not just in Romans 8. It's found in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophet Isaiah. So in verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That word groaning is like, it's, it's like, a, a, well, you know what it reminds me of is, you know when you have a cold start in your, in your vehicle in the morning and you didn't plug it in and it goes, you know, kind of like that maybe. It could be like a sigh. You know when somebody goes, you know, uh, but he actually says it's kind of like a woman in labor. And he says the universe is doing that. And not only creation, Notice this in verse 23, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as the children of God, the redemption of our bodies. And in verse 23, he says, it is not just creation. This is what the, what the living Bible says. It is not just creation. We who have already experienced the first fruits of the Spirit, we have, done, we have experienced that as believers. We groan inwardly as we long passionately to experience our full status as God's sons and daughters. And so, yes, we're saved now. But the Bible says that we will be saved and will be ultimately redeemed in the age to come. Right now, even though we're saved, folks, we still live under the curse that Adam brought to us in this life. But we, because of the Holy Spirit, we get to taste of the future glory we do have these moments of transcendence, these moments of glory that we experience when we're drawn into the presence of God, sometimes when it's in a time of corporate worship. It might be when you're reading your Bible and having your devotions or in prayer. We get a foretaste. We get to sample it like an appetizer. We get to sample the age to come. But he said, right now we still live under the curse because of Adam's sin. But verse 21 tells us that creation itself is going to be liberated from the curse and that that won't happen until we ourselves are liberated. The fate of the universe is connected inextricably with the fate of God's people. It actually says, if you read this passage, that the universe itself will be liberated when we are revealed on that day for who we really are and we become who God created us to be, conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. How many of you love the story of Beauty and the Beast? Uh, Beauty and the Beast, okay. Um, and so it's interesting. There's the prince, the young prince, but he's arrogant. He's uh, self-aggrandizing. He's narcissistic. He loves only himself. And so he falls under a curse because of the spell of an enchantress. And she says the only way that that curse could be lifted is when the last petal of a rose, when it falls, that somebody loves him and that he loves in return. And what happens is when he falls under the curse, the whole castle falls under the curse. The whole castle. And all the servants fall under the curse. But then at the end of the story, when he receives a mortal wound, Belle, the young lady who 
learns to love the beast, who learns to love him as a beast. She weeps, and she says, I love you, and she gives him a kiss. And he awakens, and he's no longer a beast, but he's now a handsome prince once again, but he has been redeemed. He's a changed man, and guess what? The castle and all the servants are redeemed when he's redeemed. That's why the universe is standing on tiptoe watching for our redemption because it's connected to ours. And so for now, we wait. We wait. And that's why he's saying there's an inward groaning, but there's also an eager waiting. Right now, we just get to sample what is yet to come. Look at verse 24. He says, in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. You know, if I say, I really hope that I'll have an iPhone someday, and I'm holding it in my hand, you say, well, why are you hoping for an iPhone? You already have it. You only hope for what you don't have. That's what this is saying. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're waiting for God's new creation to be born again. That is where our hope lies, folks. Our hope does not lie in this present age, but in the coming age. For now, we wait for it with patience and with eager expectation. But this period of waiting is not a time of discouragement at all. Don't be discouraged with what you're going through. Um, it's kind of like a woman who is pregnant with a child expecting to give birth. Um, that should be our attitude. We're pregnant with this hope. We're enlarged by this hope. Just like the overwhelming joy of a woman who gives birth to a child, all the pains of labor and all that struggle is soon forgotten, or maybe not. So do you realize really, that this is not your best life. Christians, do you realize that? Your next life will be your best life. This life as we know it now is a dress rehearsal for the main event. Now, the problem with that, I love what Trent said to me recently. He said, we shouldn't think of the next life as the great escape. Well, God's just going to take us out of this world so we could just let this world, you know, fall apart. Not at all, because we were created to rule with God. And he's saying, you know what? You need to get it right now in this life. And what we need to do is we need to take care of each other. We need to take care of our neighbors and love our neighbor. We need to love our God. And we need to also take care of his creation and live responsibly and steward it responsibly. And so I want to invite us to pray in closing. And I want to just remind you again, the reason we preach is these aren't just sermons. They're calls to action. I hope that you'll keep an open heart and an open mind as we go through the six weeks because it's going to uh, perhaps challenge some of the things that you've previously believed about heaven and about earth. But I ask that you open your Bible and study and pray and keep an open heart and mind. Let's bow our heads. Because our hope lies in the life to come, 
and not in this present age. I'm going to ask right now, will you do what it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 24 and 25? It says, hope that is seen is no hope at all. We hope for what we have not yet received. In the meantime, we wait. But we wait with anticipation. It's like we're pregnant with this hope and this promise of the coming age. Would you let that fill you? Would you, as you groan inwardly because of the suffering that we sometimes experience, would you also wait with eagerness and, trans and anticipation for what is to come? Would you be patient and say, Lord, forgive me when I grumble and complain or follow, fall into self-pity? The Bible says don't lose heart when the going gets tough. Maybe you're watching this right now. You're listening and you're, you've lost heart. You're discouraged. You're despondent. You're in despair. But you know what? Wait for what is to come. Because as your next life will be your best life if you endure, if you persevere. Don't give up. So wait. But the second thing I want to say to you is set your hope on the life to come, not on this life. Live heavenward. The Bible says, fix your eyes on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where your hope lies. Your hope is in the age to come. Hold on loosely to everything in this world, like your relationships, your health, your possessions, all the accolades you receive, because that stuff is temporary. Would you set your focus on what is eternal and put your hope there? And be generous and willing to share with others. Would you stand firm, as the Bible says? Let nothing move you. Would you always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain? Because your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you one day. Be a good steward of everything that God has placed in your hands. Be a good steward of your relationships, of God's church, of this planet, in this present age. Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're to do is by our testimony, our witness, by the, our attitudes and the way that we live, is to bring heaven to earth with little acts of kindness. Just imagine living life with your hope fixed on the life to come, the age to come. Imagine what it's going to be like in your next life because your next life is going to be your best life. Thank you, Father, for the hope that you've given us that carries us through all that we suffer in this life. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us and not only us, but your whole creation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.